Where's David? Did he fall into the water trough? How did you know he has a water trough? This episode is sponsored by Rackspace. Are you looking for a place to host your latest creation? Want terrific support? High performance? All backed by the largest open source cloud? What if you could try it for free? Try out Rackspace at rubyrogues.com slash Rackspace and get a $300 credit over six months. That's $50 per month at rubyrogues.com slash Rackspace. DevMind is a software design and development studio in Chicago with expertise in Ruby, JavaScript, and Clojure. We believe that well-crafted software makes life better, and our team of designers and engineers is dedicated to that pursuit. We love our customers, we love our team, and we spend a lot of time and effort making sure that we fit the right projects with the right people. Get in touch at devmind.com. That's D-E-V-M-Y-N-D.com. This podcast is sponsored by New Relic. To track and optimize your application's performance, go to rubyrogues.com slash newrelic. Hey everybody, and welcome to episode 155 of the jo- of JavaScript. Ouch! Ouch! <laughs> keep going, keep going. I think hey, hey, you've hey. made this mistake so many times, Chuck, Mandy, that the episode is on. Just, just pick it up. We're going with. Uh, <laughs> hey everybody! Hey everybody, and welcome to episode 155 of the Ruby Rogues podcast. This week on our panel, we have Avdi Grimm. Hey, I thought this was a C++ show. James Edward Gray. I'm only staying if we're talking about Lua. David Brady? I'm David Brady, and this episode really grinds my gears. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv, and this week we're going to talk about why Ruby is not the promised land, or maybe why there are other promised lands. That does it. I'm hanging up. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Whose idea was this? We're gonna we're gonna take some sacred cows and make some delicious, delicious hamburger. It was Abdi's idea. He's the resident curmudgeon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, All we right, got him so, complaining uh, about Erlang in the Come on. Rogues you all know this language sucks. <laughs> That's right. It's Ruby true. sucks. That's <laughs> true. So we are gonna talk about specific problem points and where they might be better. Kind of a yeah. Grass is greener sort of approach. So what's a problem point? Throw one out there. So should I start with the really big one that had the disclaimer that we talked about in the pre-show? The disclaimer? Oh, nice. Let's go I didn't see a disclaimer. So, okay, so my biggest axe to grind right now with Ruby requires a disclaimer. And the disclaimer is this. There's a rule in open source that says don't complain, only fix. And I want to be careful of that rule. Sometimes I want to build cathedrals, not make bricks. And if I bash on about the lack of a particular type of brick... I don't mean to disparage those of us out there toiling away making bricks. Keep up the great work, guys. The one exception I'll make to this disclaimer is that I want to talk about version mismatches between Ruby 1.9 and Ruby 2, and there's no other way to say it than I want our gems to work on both versions of Ruby, and sometimes they don't, and I don't have time to fix the entire Ruby ecosystem, so I'm just going to complain instead. (laughs) Isn't this the point that uh, I think it was Opti made a few weeks ago about debuggers? Yeah, the debugger is probably the penultimate example since yeah. it seems to break with every uh, <laughs> yeah. every single version of Ruby. Yeah. Ultimately, what it comes down to is there's currently, in my opinion, there's currently no stable version of Ruby that also has a robust ecosystem. There are widely used tools like MetricFoo that aren't ready for Ruby 2. As of a month or two ago, Ripper still wouldn't rip Ruby 2 syntax. I think that's changed, but there are other widely used tools like Guard 
that have amputated their Ruby 1.9 support. They just don't run. Like RB readline won't work uh, on Ruby 1.2. And Guard has switched to use RB readline instead of the RB notify and, you know, the, the different types of readline support that it had. So in some languages, you have this, you, you want to change things and you have this, uh, this trailing edge of really old legacy stuff. And then you have this stable platform where everybody gets along great. And then you have this sloping forward, bleeding, leading edge of the language. And right now I feel like Ruby 2 is bleeding edge and not worky. And we have amputated the tail of 1.9 support in some areas, but we've amputated so close to the bleeding edge that there is no stable platform in the middle. So what language has a stable platform? Uh, I'm going to go ahead and uh, eat my own words on this one. I have uh, publicly derided Python for freezing core for two years. Guido stopped development on core to let the other, uh, like, he basically stopped development on, like, the reference language so that everyone else could catch up. And that was right at the time that Ruby was saying, hey, let's go from 1.8 you know, one eight seven to one nine, and let's let's not be backwards compatible. Let's let's jump headlong into the future. And Python at that same time literally was freezing for two years. And I mocked Python ridiculously, and this just totally showed how Python w- were a bunch of stick in the mud, backwards, fear of progress people. And boy, those words are really hard to chew. But boy, golly, I'm going to have to eat them because we are now reaping a little bit of the dark side of having jumped forward so fast and cut ties with our past so quickly. So is there a way to solve this problem? Let me, let me say this because this is interesting. I have not felt this particular pain with Ruby two. I definitely felt it in the one eight one nine era. And I assume that's no, you know, when we were making that transition, I'm pretty sure the whole world felt it. I thought Ruby two was Fairly smooth. There were some changes. Uh, I had one particularly uh, large app that began to seg fault on it, uh, which was really unfortunate and caused some problems. Um, and then the Ruby 2 to Ruby 2.1, I mean, to me, that was almost a plug and play. Uh, yeah. like, it seemed perfect. So I, I find it interesting that, that you've run into that a lot lately, and I haven't. That You mentioned Ripper. Ripper is included in Ruby, and I wasn't aware that it, that there was any point that it couldn't parse its own syntax. It's actually really interesting if you if you look at how it's implemented. They cover it a little bit in um, Rum because the parser basically now has if else's at almost every node that mm-hmm. it parses, and like so, the if is am I parsing this for Ruby itself? In which case I do this, this, uh, you know, thing to get it ready to go to Ruby or am I parsing it for Ripper? Um, right. and so that it can do that. So I, I feel like the Ripper integration is like really amazingly good. Yeah. But I haven't I, seen that. I may be, I may be fingering the wrong gem. I, I think it's Ripper, but a month but ago. Ripper's, Ripper's I, not a gem. It's included. Ripper, with, sorry. Yeah. Wow, I may be actually beef having a beef with Ruby itself then. Uh, all I know is I wrote a program that had keyword arguments, and I want to say optional keyword arguments, so we're talking 2-1 stuff here, and it just blew up. It's uh, like metric, metric foo, one of its gems, like Saikuro, I think, uses. And you know what might have been happening is that Saikuro might have been using an older version 
I'm not sure how that's even possible, but it might have been using an older version of Ripper to parse the Ruby syntax. And yeah, it's I, I lost all my comp- complexity metrics because the language couldn't be parsed anymore. That's interesting. I haven't I haven't run into that problem, but I, admit, I haven't used metric foo in a while. And um, guard, I think, was the other one you named with uh, yeah. readline. I haven't hit that particular problem either. I do use guard, but I don't think I've used it very recently. So. Yeah. I may have just dodged that bullet. I don't yeah. know. Have you, have you checked? Have you run into trouble with the Ruby 2 transition? Or It's been smoother than previous ones. I'm just the lone voice crying in I, the wilderness. <laughs> I, I, I run into things occasionally that don't. For example, I, I move ahead when there's a new version of Ruby out. So I'm writing code on Ruby 2.1. And occasionally I'll run into something that doesn't play real nice. You know, there's some little gotcha between 2.0 and 2.1 or 1.9 and 2.1, but it's it's pretty rare, and most of the time I can find a way around it without too much hassle. One of the, one of the issues Dave brought up is really good, I, I think, and that's keyword arguments. Uh, in my opinion, keyword arguments didn't really become fully baked, production-ready, this is a go, until Ruby 2.1. Which was that kind was of unfortunate. I, I almost wish they could have shipped in that state originally because, uh, you know, it's, it's this weird thing. Now when I'm using Ruby 2, we have an application at work that's tied to Ruby 2 and it's like, I'll use keyword arguments and then I forget, oh, they still have that one major disadvantage here, you know, and so. Yeah. 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 yeah it- Last week we talked about games with Megan Fox, and uh, I mentioned that I might go off and do Ludum Dare with uh, Ruby Gosu, and I was going to explore the releasey gem to ship to Windows. And for anybody who, who's interested, I did actually chicken out, largely because the Saturday of Ludum Dare turned out to be my wife's birthday, which I, as a ignorant, uh, standard, boneheaded husband, forgot. So... Through no fault of Ruby's, uh, that didn't happen. But I did take a minute to install Releasey, and it requires to, if you want to build on Linux, which I do, and you want to ship to Windows, which I did, you have to use Ruby 192. And all sorts of things fell apart. Like Minitest was available as a gem in Ruby 1.9, wouldn't run. And what happens is, is Bundler just gives up. It says, I can't give you the version you need, even though that version a version that satisfies the Ruby version number requirement, even though a version of that gem might exist out there, Bundler can't find it. It just gives up. And so you're at that point, you're literally going out to GitHub and digging through the commit history of the gem to find which commit message to clone and build manually and install. I will admit that 95% of the time, Ruby and Bundler are great and they work fantastic and they're seamless. But the other five, 5% of the time, we have no package management and our pants are down on the internet. So I have to ask this, at what point is it appropriate to drop support for 1.9 or 1.8? Well, 1.8 never, never. is dropped. So you right. drop support when the core team drops support? Um, well, my, I, my code still runs on 1.8.4. Wow, <laughs> that would not be not awesome. Really. Not really. I, I actually think... have code that doesn't run. So I'm, I'm, I'm a hypocrite here, right? Tourbus doesn't run. We we dragged it kicking and screaming to Ruby two, but Migratrix won't run on Ruby one eight. Just it just won't. Um, I so I mean, so, so this is hard. I think the core team is usually fairly conservative uh, in Ruby land as far as 
support. I mean, Ruby one eight was only uh, one eight seven was only end of life. Was it last year or the year before? I think right. I think it, it was last it, year. It hasn't been very long. Yeah, and, and to me that was really conservative. I mean, I was long past it then, uh, and I felt like the gems had caught up. I don't know. It's an interesting problem. Like it, I, I do agree that you know Ruby tends to to push forward and, and, you know, occasionally there will be a release that breaks a lot of things. I feel like they're slowing that down some since the Ruby 1.9, you know, transition, which was brutal, you know, in a word. I don't know. It's, it's an interesting point. There are definitely languages that are more stable, move slower, uh, stuff like that. But I, I think we should stress, like, there can be downsides to stuff like that. Like, for example, um, when did Erlang get Unicode? <laughs> like, wasn't that also does it? Fa- fairly recently? Does, or? It, does it have it? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm just saying, like, that you can't go too slow, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's also nice to have more explicit constructs in the language for saying, I am going to use something from the future, or I am going, I, you know, swear that I am totally compatible with the past. You know, Ooh, with, What, what yeah. languages do that? Well, I mean, you know, we, we talked a little about Python. Python has the import from future thing. Uh, where you can import language features that are not, I guess, I, it's been a while since I've done Python, but basically, basically import language features from the future that aren't, uh, you know, part of this current release, but that are, I guess, in there experimentally. JavaScript um, and, does this as well. And then you can see that in the file, you know, and an analyzer can see that in the file and say, oh, okay, this file probably isn't going to work on a version that doesn't even have that in its future libraries. Yeah. JavaScript solves it in a different way. They actually uh, have transpilers. So ECMAScript 6, for example, is not in current browsers, but the Angular core team is writing Angular 2 in ECMAScript 6 and then transpiling it to ECMAScript 5. Which is cool. And that kind of thing is incredibly difficult in Ruby. Yeah. 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 Uh, Which kind of brings me to one of my complaints. Bring it. Wait, before you do that, Avdi, I wanted to give a specific shout out. Mia Johnson is personal. She is the reason that uh, Tourbus runs on Ruby 2. As much as I complain about gems that don't run on two versions, I didn't want to maintain my own gem, and she was the one who kept after me and pushed and helped, and we got it running on Ruby 2. So it, thank you, Mia. It is, like, super cool when people go and take old libraries and fix yes. that and stuff. Yes. That's awesome. All right, well, like, Avdi, you were going to tell like us. Or like when, when Eric Michaels Ober took uh, my not gem and said, hey, I want to use this in my gem, but for that I need it to be 1.8 compatible. Yeah. And moved yeah. mountains, like, did things that amazed me to make it. I didn't, there were things in there I didn't think that it was possible to port, but yeah. he managed to make it happen, and now yes. it supports 1.8. So, yes, Ruby is incredibly difficult to parse. The parser code is a nightmare for, for anybody, you know, for implementers. Yeah. Um, and the reason it's incredibly difficult to parse is, is because it tries to be super friendly, to programmers who like writing really expressive code, which is nice. I mean, it's one of the reasons that I use it. But here's the thing. You have your static languages. Uh, you have your C++ and your Java, and you have your you know nicer static languages like Haskell, uh, etc. And those, you know, they're static, so they get compiled, and compilers and other tools that are smart enough can learn a great deal about the code. They can make all kinds of interesting predictions about it, and they can be certain about things at certain points in the code just by analyzing it statically, because they're made to be analyzed statically, uh, which means that you can make, build really cool refactoring tools for them. You can have tools that can very easily go through and do things like, oh, hey, you wanted to extract that method out? Well, I've found three different places 
that are exact that I've determined uh, without a shadow of a doubt are exactly identical to that code. Would you like me to replace those with calls to your new method? And you have a lot of neat stuff like that. You can do a lot of really advanced refactorings automatically. And an automatic refactoring is nice because it means you can think in terms of domain and semantics. You can say, oh, I want a new thing rather than I need to type 15 different, you know, I need to make 15 different changes in order to have a new thing. And then you have your dynamic languages. And, you know, one of the biggest influences on Ruby in this regard is both Smalltalk and Lisp. And they have none of these guarantees. You know, they're, everything's, everything's only known at runtime. You could, you know, an object could have methods added to it at any time. So you can't make any of these predictions. Uh, but they make up for that because, you know, in small talk, there is only runtime. There is no such thing as not runtime. So it makes up for the fact that you can't make any static predictions about it by the fact that the system is always running. You can always <laughs> ask the system what methods does this object respond to? You can do neat things in, in small talk, like given this message send here, this abstract message send, I don't, I haven't, don't have a receiver, just the message send. What would respond to that in my entire system? And you, you can ask the system that because the system is running at all times. And, and, and Lisp systems, maybe not all of them, but, but some Lisp systems were very similar, you know, where you had a running image and you could ask the image things about its, you know, dynamic nature. And so that, that kind of took care of the, the things on the dynamic front. Ruby is in this gutter in the, between the two. <laughs> um, it is in the worst possible position between the two. It is impossible to statically analyze. Uh, yes, people try, but there's just a hard limit on what you can do with it, and it's very on, hard. Andy, and most of it's just <laughs> most of it's just heuristics. You know, it's heuristics like in this case, I think probably you have access to the following methods, but I can never actually be sure. But at the same time, there's no image. You know, it's very difficult to just have a running Ruby image and develop inside a running Ruby image where you can just ask the image, okay, uh, you know, give me all the things that might respond to this message. Yeah. Uh, you know, and, and you have things like it's difficult to have an image that just that, that reloads things because reloading things in Ruby is messy and often leaves stuff lying around. And, uh, or you have things like, oh, you can't reload that class because you've added, because now it has a different uh, super class and that's just a no, a no, no. And uh, so reloading is, is a problem for images. A lot of things make it difficult or impossible to have just a, a long-running image that you develop in in Ruby. Yeah. So it's just an awful position to be in. And, you know, I, I've, I've done some, I uh, did a Ruby Tapas episode recently where I was demonstrating how I sometimes flip over to RubyMine. And RubyMine, the RubyMine team has gone to great lengths to try to do some, some nice automated refactorings for Ruby. They're incredibly primitive compared to the ones that are available in Java, but, but they're there and they even do a little bit of duplicate code detection and stuff like that. But it's, it's really barely there. Um, you kind of have to handhold it a lot of the time. It doesn't always get things right. And there's just no way out the way things are set up right now. And, and, if you want to see an example of, of how things are different, check out either of those two sides. I mean, you know, check out the amazing refactorings that are available in, in IDEs for Java. Um, I think some similar things exist for some of the, the static functional languages. Or check out the, the stuff that you can do in, in Smalltalk, refactor-wise. So that's my rant. I have no response to I, that. <laughs> I love it. I, I love it. I, you, you were going down the small talk thing, and I'm like, oh, dude, we could, Ruby has object space. We could walk all the objects, and we could say, do you respond to this method? Oh, except for we can't really query the arity of a method. We can't know how many yeah. arguments it's supposed to take. And then you, you really nailed it, which is object space, 
has no response for objects that are lazily loaded and the file hasn't been loaded into memory yet. Yeah. It's, it's really, I mean, it has honestly been pushing me towards using other languages lately because I've, okay, when I'm gluing stuff together, when I'm writing system, system automation scripts and stuff like that, I'm gluing stuff together. A, a language like Ruby is fantastic. When I want to think in more domain terms, I want to think in more domain terms. I don't want to have to do all the work of refactoring, moving things around. I mean, a lot of design is moving things around, and I don't want to have to think about that. I want to be able to work at a higher level. Kind of um, one thing I was thinking about when I was listening to you talk is Light Table. Have you seen that, the editor? That oh, yes. Yeah, that's it, that would be really hard to... I, I don't know if it has Ruby support yet. I haven't really looked at it, but if it does, I, I'm sure it can't be as thorough as some of the things I've seen uh, in it. And and that's largely due to everything Amji just said. So, yeah, it's an interesting point. Ruby almost forces you down to dealing with classes at the characters in a text file level, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, ah, I think you're dead on. <laughs> So right. why else do we hate, hate, hate Ruby? That's right. Well, we're getting it all out of our system. I, I've got a complaint. My complaint is the Ruby Standard Library, which I will go ahead and admit is one of my favorite and least favorite things of Ruby at the same time. The reason I say that is that I love having everything in the kitchen sink. I love being able to say I can count on something and know that I can require it, and it will be there, and that lets me write Ruby programs that I just know, you know, will run and do these things and stuff like that. So I love that aspect of it. And for the most part, the standard library includes a lot of the things I think are really, really critical, with maybe a couple of exceptions, like Nogogiri or something. Though it does have Rexamount, right, in defense. But that is kind of the crux of it for me. The standard library, I think, and and this isn't really a fault of, you know, the core team or anything like that. It's that once a library is pulled into the standard library, it's kind of slowed way down in its development cycle. It's expected that it will be very stable and, and not, you know, jump around a lot, uh, and it will always be there and it will always be the same. And so, some of those libraries, I mean, are great, but we have much more modern versions that are leagues ahead. So I, I, it would be great if we could rotate those in and rotate the old ones out, because obviously we don't want like six XML parsers in there, or uh, if we could somehow keep progressing and building toward the future with the libraries that are in there. Sometimes, I mean, requiring RexML and using that on XML versus, you know, the current state of Nokogiri feels like a major step backwards, you know, or uh, Webrick. Webrick is awesome and cool and, and neat, uh, you know, but, but what about Rack? I mean, Rack is kind of a, a similar, I, I realize they're not exactly the same thing, but how come Ra- Webrick is in the standard library, but Rack's not? Is Rack still evolving too heavily so it can't be moved in or whatever? But it, I think my problem is that they get in there and they, they just kind of stagnate. And then that makes it difficult to go forward. That's my complaint. So what's a language that handles this better? 
So we were talking about this uh, actually a little bit before the show, and I think the consensus was that Java is probably the gold standard here, right? With its, uh, it, it kind of has a cultivation process, right? Where things start outside the language and get a certain level of, you know, fame, and then uh, they go through kind of an improvement and touch-up process and then get imported into the language proper. So I guess... By the time they get there, they're still they're they're pretty good. And then I I'm not super familiar. It's been so long since I've been in the Java world. I'm not familiar with how well they do going forward from there. Or maybe it's just that they were so good by the time they get in that they're a lot better, and it's okay to make them the standard. Um, mm-hmm. And I think in Ruby's defense, you know, a lot of these things were probably imported at a younger time in Ruby's life. So like. We need an XML parser. Okay, XML is the best we got. Let's go with that. You know, and then great. And XML doesn't require uh, like uh, libxml, which Nokogiri does. So they went forward with that because it was the best choice at the time. But it's not the best choice at this time anymore, right? And and I pretty much never see code parsing XML with XML anymore, right? Am I alone in that? I'm gonna have to write some. Yeah, new goal. My opinions on XML are, is is that it's a four letter word. The no, second just, joke, just just three. No, no XML is a four letter word. The F is silent, um, <laughs> and and the follow on joke is the F stands for verbose. But uh, <laughs> yeah, no, it's cool. I love the standard letter. I you know I can't count the number of times I've required P store or something and just blown somebody's mind. You know and. And gotten ridiculous amounts of work done. I I love things like that, but I do wish we could find a way to uh, keep it moving forward and maybe find a good process for rotating things in, rotating things out, uh, still developing in parallel. And I think this is on the core team's radar. There's been talk of, like, gemifying the entire standard library. And then just having it be when Ruby installs certain gems install, but then you could still easily upgrade to like newer versions of that gem or whatever, uh, if you wanted to. So seems like that could maybe mitigate the problem a little bit of things stagnating in there and maybe free their development cycle from being tied to Ruby's development cycle. But I don't know. To me, it's like, it's a great thing and a bad thing at the same time. Yeah, agreed. So I'm going to throw one out there, and my experience with this has not been super recent, except for some of my coaching clients. Sometimes we run into stuff, and that is uh, Ruby on Windows. Uh, The Windows support, I have to say, has gotten a whole lot better than it used to be. Um, I started programming in Ruby professionally in like 2006, and yeah, it was kind of a pain on Windows. And by kind of a pain, it, it mostly worked, but if you had to like compile... C extensions or anything like that. It just really didn't work. And today it's gotten a lot better. And so you can use a lot of the gems that are out there with it. But for some of these, you still don't have a great option for some of the things that they require. So for example, they have to rely on DLLs and uh, stuff like that. And if it's not there, then it's not there. And there's not really anything you can do. But we do tend to keep up a little bit. It's just a little bit behind now. But I have to say, like, Rails installer and Ruby installer have come a long way to making that possible. I think one of the complaints I heard recently with Windows was that Win32 API was 
deprecated, is that right, I think? And then they're, you're not supposed to use it anymore, you're supposed to use fiddle, I think, instead. Is that acceptable alternative? But it, but that's, I think that's significantly harder. And I, I may be wrong on all that. This is just what I've heard. But it does seem like the Windows solutions lag a little bit behind the Unix support. Yep. I also remember going back and finding like the MWIN32 blah, blah, blah version of the gem. So. All right. Now, now I often hear an objection whenever this comes up. Well, why does it matter? Why do we need support on Windows? No, that's not a cool objection. <laughs> it, it's really not because... Windows still dominates the business marketplace. There's, yeah. there's so much. Uh, I, I mean, when you start talking big data, you're either talking Java, or you're talking .NET, right? I mean, schools, schools use Windows. Schools use Windows. Well, um, most personal computing is still done on Windows as well, not just business. absolutely, absolutely. I mean, I, I spent a couple of years writing device drivers for Windows. So guess what operating system I had to live on twenty, you know. The entire time I was at work, yeah, I have a neighbor. Plus, I just don't think. I mean, you know, as those of us, you know, probably who listen to this podcast, there's probably a lot of us that favor things like Linux and stuff like that. But you know, surely we haven't liked that attitude of like, oh, we don't have to support Linux, you know, so we don't ever want to be doing that to any other platform, right? Yeah. Well, yeah, the- for the record, I learned Ruby primarily on Windows because that's what I had available to me at the time. How did you feel it was, pain, pain point-wise? Uh, to be honest, for the stuff that I was doing back then, it wasn't really that that painful. I wasn't employing a lot of gems. Uh, I was actually using it for some Windows automation. Actually, one of the cool things about uh, Ruby is that very early on, it shipped with Win32 OLE module, which enabled you to do things like automate Excel from Ruby, uh, which was a lot of fun. If I you- believe that's the one they recently deprecated. I may be wrong on that. You know, if you if you preferred to do that, over using Visual Basic for it. You know, it, for the stuff that I was doing, and, and, you know, I was, like, doing stuff with some, a lot of Core Ruby and YAML and stuff like that, and just not a lot of stuff from from the ecosystem. So it wasn't a huge problem, and I certainly wasn't, like, serving web pages, doing a lot of concurrency with it. I think that if I had, you know, been doing less, like, automation tasks and more application tasks, I probably would have gotten frustrated faster. Yeah. I, I have two things that I want to bring up with this as well. I mean, one thing is, is that most of the people that I see at like the new Rubyist workshops, they show up with a Dell or an HP yep. machine or yep. something like that, and they're running Windows. And if you can't get them set up and you can't do it quickly and easily, we lose them right there, like right at the doorstep. Yeah, and it's, it's now really some people sad. some people at this point will will say, "Well, get them to load up a, a, a Linux VM." No, yeah, that's, <laughs> I right. revise that exactly. No. <laughs> well, that's hassle, and if you don't do that, then you wind up using one of the like bash emulators, and because I mean, those what you're aren't saying great is, too. What you're saying is number one, you're saying you have to bring it, bring in a Windows machine with sufficient horsepower to to run a VM, mm-hmm. which somebody might not have. And what you're also saying is, oh, to learn this new programming language, you have to learn an entire new operating system. <laughs> yes. Yep. No that, problem. That argument it, torques me out a little bit. It's so easy. <laughs> yeah, that that actually segs well into my next gripe. I can't write a program, compile it, and give it to my mom. 
in Ruby. In theory, it can be done, right? I mean, Ruby Motion, I can build an iOS app, but that really just lets me release to the entire world via the App Store, not give a program to a friend without giving them a temporary beta license. There, I mean, there's like the LLVM, there are compilers, there's the Releasey gem that we've already talked about, and, and we've talked about it having problems. And ultimately, if you are writing in Ruby, your consumers are either people who use websites or other Rubyists. We, we're not building solutions in Ruby for people outside of Ruby. That bugs me. Yeah. I mean, Mac ships with Ruby, so technically you can hand something over to them and they can, if they can figure out how to run it, then they can run it. As long as you target the version that's on their Mac. Exactly. And you, you know, that version changes every single release, so you'd probably be locking yourself to a certain Mac OS and higher. Case right. in point, I had a neighbor email me and he said, do you know a good program that will download the list of my Twitter followers into a text file? And I emailed him back and I said, not off the top of my head, but I could probably write one in 20 minutes. And then he's like, oh, that would be cool. And I emailed him back and I said, what, you know, what do you, what kind of machine do you have? And he emailed me back and told me Windows. And so, I mean, I'd have to have him install Ruby on his machine in order to make it run. And it just, yeah, it's hassle. It's hassle city to, to give somebody non-technical, you know, something like that to run. And in that case, it's actually a one-liner with the T-Gym. Yeah. <laughs> Which is, I mean, yeah, it's cool. It's it's like we have all these tools, we want to give them to everybody, but when, and this is true, and I see this every time I teach somebody Ruby, they get to the point where they're like, oh, how do I write a program that I can, like, run on my computer at work? I'm like, yeah, we don't really do that. We build a web app and we hit it through the browser. <laughs> yeah. like, because that's our yeah. best choice, right? Yeah. Well, and it's a I, whole added level of complexity that you don't need for something like, give me a list of my Twitter followers, right? Right. Yeah. Right. And and again, there, there do exist tools, right? I mean, why the Lucky Stiff wrote that weird, wacky thing that would just... Shoes? Not shoes. It was a different thing. It, but it would take... Maybe it was shoes, but it, it would take an entire Ruby script and the entire Ruby interpreter and it would stick them into a, like he just laid them down in a binary file. And on Linux, he laid them down in the elf format. And on, on Windows, he laid down the data segment and the code segment in an exe. And on Mac OS X, he laid down the right segments of a DMG file. And when you ran the program, it ran Ruby that it had contained with itself. And then it loaded out of the data segment your script. I mean, so this stuff is there, but it's, it's kind of scary. Awesome. It's, it's, <laughs> it's really scary, right? I mean, it's, I, I cannot believe for a minute that that wouldn't trip most virus scanners today, right? Especially if you're trying to write data back to the file to store it. But uh, also on Windows, we have the one-click installer, which, honestly, I don't know where it's at because I haven't touched Windows. I mean, no disrespect to the guys that maintain it. The OCI fell out of favor for a while. It was unmaintained for a long time, and then it was maintained again. And OCI is great because it, it also includes uh, Rails, so, I mean, you can give somebody a Ruby and a Rails, and they can get up and they can get going. I tell people to use that. Rails installer now. And oh, okay. it, it works seamlessly, even if they just need Ruby, because it puts Ruby on there and it works. Right. So, in a similar vein, let's talk about GUI support. Ew. <laughs> Ruby, Ruby has shipped with a GUI toolkit for uh, forever, right? Uh, Ruby TK. 
And uh, my hat's off to the Ruby TK maintainers because uh, they have had to go above and beyond and then some uh, to maintain things over the years because uh, of things like mismatches between Ruby using its own threading system and TK expecting like real operating system threads right. and stuff. So they, they I, I can't even imagine how they've done so well uh, with that. But that's generally not, you know, like uh, when, we, when we talk GUI, I mean, TK is nice, but probably not our first thought when we think of making a good fits in everywhere kind yeah. of GUI. My programming background was years and years in Visual Basic and then Visual C++ in Windows, then uh, Visual C++ in Windows, so you know, like .NET and MFC and all that good stuff. And so I naturally think, when I want to give somebody a utility to work on something, I naturally think in terms of a dialog application that opens up a dialog box, gives you some controls, and you can click on them. And Ruby will let you do that by packing things using the TK libraries, and there are people out there right now going, what about Fox Windows? What about WX Windows? And my answer is, uh, they, all, <laughs> they all stink. They're all lousy. Or a transcriptionist, you know? Yeah. That's, that's how you gotta feel sorry for it. Yep. Using WX Windows and using TK from the programmer's side of things, basically no different. You're still playing games with packing widgets from source code. So you, you have to read basically a document and then compile it in your head to try and figure out what this dialog box is going to look like. We had a thread on Parlay months ago where somebody said, I wish we had the Visual Basic RAD tool where you could just drag dialog boxes and drag buttons on and drag list controls and then double-click on things to go right to a code editor and write the handler for on-click and and, and that sort of thing. And it, it was funny that the one person actually responded, and I believe it was out of just a vehement hatred of all things Microsoft, but they actually responded with, I don't want this tool to ever exist in Ruby. And I love you, Parley members. I love all of you like my children, but whichever child you were that said that, you're wrong. <laughs> and, and go to your room. <laughs> and go to your room. I still love you, but go to your room. Well, um, build it in a gem, and if you don't want it, don't install it. Yeah, it's, I don't know, it's, I have thought long and hard about building a rad tool for Ruby that all it does is because I can in developer studio, it spits out this, I can't remember what the name of the file is, but it spits out basically uh, like an XML document or, you know, a, a binary document that describes what the layout of the window is after you're done drawing it. And I, I really just don't see any reason why we couldn't build a graphical environment, drag and drop stuff in in Ruby and have it spit out this data blob and then have a Ruby gem that reads that data blob or loads it from file and throws it over to TK or WX Windows or whatever. Uh, actually, I see a whole bunch of reasons why we couldn't do it. One is integrating with TK and WX Windows and Fox or whatever window library means you need different adapters. And the other one is, again, I want to build cathedrals, not make bricks. And so I'm bemoaning the lack of bricks here. I'm not complaining. You know, this is one of those cases where don't complain, fix it. Well... I don't want to fix it because this would be an epic project, right? Those rapid um, development uh, tools, they're cool anytime you see them. I, I've even seen one in Ruby. Ryan Davis had a thing, I'm pretty sure it was Inspire, had a thing that um, using OmniGraffle Pro, 
he could use the UML stuff included with OmniGraffle Pro and like, you know, UML designed some classes and then he integrated that, uh, you know, it, it had some, some API or something and he integrated that where it would pop out the Ruby classes and the methods would already be in them and stuff that, that was said would be there. And I mean, it was yeah. neat, you know, not a, you know, this is going to change how you program forever, yeah. but it was still very cool. Like, uh, in that, and you see this in lots of places like, um, Unity and stuff we've talked about have lots of tools, uh, you know, Unreal Engine where, you know, it, some decisions in programming don't have to be thought out from let's start assigning some variables and write some code and blah, blah, blah. You can, you can start at higher levels, which is actually what Avni was sort of talking about before that, you know, in, in game stuff where you can, uh, you know, connect certain environments just by manipulating these graphic nodes and then drop into the code when you want to change something or uh, if you use something like Blender for uh, 3D imaging or something, similar thing, graphic environment, you drag these nodules around and you create procedural textures for your yeah. uh, 3D objects. Or we talked to Jackie uh, a while back at the New York Times, and they have that stream tools, right, which is designed for streaming information into various systems, and they... They're literally using a, a visual drag and drop system for that, right? Uh, mm-hmm. To set that up. It's, it's amazing stuff. Yeah. It's kind of like programming in the future. Almost. Except that it started in 1996 and we've lost it. <laughs> <laughs> so now it's like programming in the past. Yeah. I will say, there's a good version of that and there's a bad version of that. And I think, you know, what some of the pain points, you know, what, what some of the remembered pain might come from is the bad version of that, which manifested back in the day in tools that would write a whole lot of code for you. Yes. And, yeah. and you know, it was usually one of two things. Either there were these huge sections of code that just you, you weren't allowed to touch hands off. If you touch things here, things will break. Um, and the tool would maintain that, or they would go a little further. They would try to do the round tripping thing where you could modify the code and then it would be reflected back in the tool. And, um, you know, that was a interesting kettle of fish. And, you know, the flip side of this is tools that don't actually write code for you. So like, as my understanding is that most modern GUI frameworks have some sort of GUI definition language. Uh, as far as I know, like Qt has a GUI builder, which is really independent of any programming language. You, you can, you build a UI in it, and it's basically building up some sort of, I don't know, XML representation or something along those lines, some, something yeah. standardized. And then the various language bindings to that GUI framework, you know, you, they can all load up one of these definitions, and that gives you, you know, at, at runtime, that gives you something that you can hook it, hook your events into, regardless of what language you're in. So, yeah, I mean, I agree with people that have been burned by tools that tried to generate a lot of code, but there are other ways of handling it. And that might actually be a, an option in Ruby is, you know, I haven't, I haven't really played with this, but uh, I understand uh, the Qt support is pretty decent these days. And, you know, building up a U- UI using their, their GUI builder and then hooking Ruby into it might be workable. The Prags had a, a short book on it uh, one time with Qt and... I read it back then, but it seems to kind of passed. I don't know that that phase. 
People didn't get into GUI development in Ruby for some reason. I'm not totally clear on. Well, Ruby started out as as a peer kind of to Perl almost as I'm, you know, even more than to Python. I mean, the Ruby and Python kind of came out at the same time as, you know, noble successors to Perl. Right. And Perl was this text graphic language that could do anything because everything was text. And so Perl even had the, you know, the, the TK bindings to give you crappy looking windows from the, from the get go. And so Ruby has Ruby TK to give you crappy looking windows right from the get go. And then, you know, Python got some cleaner windowing tools and Ruby got some cleaner windowing tools. Ruby seems to have not been as interested, I guess, as an ecosystem, and we as developers just haven't been as concerned. Like like with Python, very clear that game developers wanted to move forward. So Pygame Pi and, and those things are a lot more robust and a lot more stable and a lot more solid, where and I'm here, I'm using games as an extension of graphics and windowing support. But in, in, in Ruby, I think we kind of, you know, there's a few of us that really, really want it, but Everyone else is kind of happy either writing Rails apps or the occasional transformation script that, you know, just munges files on the uh, disk system. So let's talk about one more before we call it a day because it's interesting. Dave, you had problems with concurrency, right? He's the only problems. one. Yeah, this is this is one that I mentioned in the pre-show and you said you wanted to argue about it. And I, I'm excited about this one. So I'm going to... Yeah, I'm glad we've saved this one for last because it is the sacred cow with Ruby, the, the the biggest number one sacred cow. Standard MRI Ruby is slow, single-threaded, and uses a lot of memory. There, I said it. It's out on the table. Um, <laughs> we can get around all of these problems. Ruby can't scale. We can get Ruby can't scale. That's it's it's true. Uh, we can get around all these problems. James, you gave a great talk uh, at Lone Star years ago about uh, Ruby is not slow. Uh, it can be as fast as you want, and here's why. And you showed all the the things that we had available in Ruby. And you know, single threading. You can go to JRuby. You can go to Event Machine. Here is my beef with this: going to something like JRuby or Event Machine, surmounting these problems requires introducing an inordinate amount of technical hassle like deploying we, we have that we have an entire book by Joe Kuttner called uh, deploying JRuby because if you switch to JRuby now you have to know which version of Java to use Java 6 or Java 7 you have to know you know Java tools are going to creep in like now you're going to be m making your project with ant instead of rake even knowing which version of the JDK or the JRE to install. Do I install OpenJDK? Do I install the default Linux Java 7 JDK? Do I go to the, the Oracle's website and, you know, download their JDK, you know, installer, RPM, Debian file, whatever? These technical hassles. Event Machine is a great gem for Ruby that lets us write evented Ruby, but Event Machine also has a lot of problems of its own. And more importantly, writing evented Ruby looks wildly different than writing a regular Ruby script and just adding in concurrency where you need it. It's like you have to turn your whole program on its head. And I feel like like Ruby, yeah, it's slow, single-threaded and uses a ton of resources. And surmounting these problems introduces a whole bunch of other problems that are annoying and a hassle. Can I pile on for a second? Because even if you're writing evented no, code... No, they're all against me. <laughs> uh, even if you're writing evented code, I mean, you're still blocked by the gill. I mean, you right. know, the threads don't go to other pro or other processors or other cores on your processor. So, 
you know, yeah, it'll switch threads and, and work on something else, but only if the other thread has given up the global interpreter lock so that the other one can do its thing. Avdi, you want to get in a few slaps? <laughs> <laughs> I think they covered it pretty well. I mean, the concurrency story on Ruby sucks. We didn't talk about memory. <laughs> well, he said resources. Use it an inordinate yeah. amount of resources. Yeah. All right, so since I, I feel like I'm the lone defender here, I will I will make my best attempt uh, at defending some of these things. But, but I mean, yeah, I, I think, you know, it's not like I can save it. Slow, I kind of disagree with in that I, I do believe in the past Ruby has been almost criminally slow. Uh, I really feel like they've made massive headway once Yarv was integrated. I, I have to give you that one yep. because I got beat up regularly at my day job that Ruby was slower than PHP. And in 191 or 192, Yarv is now faster than PHP. And all the PHP guys now no longer care about comparative benchmarks. <laughs> yeah, I, I I did feel Ruby speed in some areas. Um, Dave mentioned that talk. I basically went through and showed a lot of cheats uh, to get Ruby to go faster. And there are a lot of cheats. I'll put the link to the slides in the show notes. Using things like an array so that you can manipulate a whole bunch of C integers in tandem and stuff. You can go crazy fast on things like graphic manipulation and stuff like that. Um, so there have been cheats to get around it in the past. I got to tell you, I'm feeling that need a lot less these days now that uh, Ruby 2 has really come of age. And I feel like uh, it's pretty smoking fast on a lot of things. There have been, you know, the occasional stumbling block, like how Ruby gems would basically file stack everything when it was trying to reacquire stuff. And that uh, that was a big slowdown. So there's definitely been bumps in the road. But uh, as far as at the way I'm seeing speed improve, all I can say is thumbs up, core team, looks awesome. <laughs> you know, like, it uh, looks great to me. That's definitely true, but you can't get around the fact that, that if you want to do something that's math-heavy, in other words, you know, just engages the processor a lot in Ruby, it's not going to, you know, even though it uses native threads nowadays, MRI still is not going to parallelize that math-heavy processing because... Right because anything that's actually in native Ruby itself is going to take the gill. So, yes, that, that is basically Dave's second point, single-threaded, right? So let's talk about that one, because I think it's the biggie. Can, can, um, I, can I say something on speed really quickly? Yeah, sure. Because speed is two concerns for me. I mean, one is, you know, does it tell me the answer fast enough? And and I think that's what we're talking about here where, you know, the NRAs or these other tricks or, or not having to use them anymore. Yeah, it tells me the answer fast enough. But the other thing that comes up is that it's also in some ways a measure of how much work it had to do to get the answer. And so there are other systems out there that could take advantage of, you know, C is an example of this where it's just really wicked fast, you know, and it doesn't mm-hmm. take as much processing to get the answer because it's, you know, it's it's a little bit lower level uh, language. And so, you know, there, there's that as well, where when you scale it up, you have to scale it up to handle a little bit more work. Yeah, I think that's true. I mean, it, it, to some extent, that's the impossible to mitigate, right? Calling yeah. a Ruby method yeah. will always be more expensive than calling a C function, right? Yeah. Because there's so much context involved and, and stuff like that. Um, yeah. 
Yeah, but, yeah. but for the most part, you know, you can scale it. It's not terribly painful to do it. And but but at the same time, I just wanted to point that out that there are processes out there that are a little bit more efficient than Ruby is. Yeah. Well, and, and to be fair, if you are trying, if you're worrying about speed in an interpreted byte compiled garbage collected language, you are already in a state of sin. <laughs> <laughs> I don't right? know. I mean, it's, there's there's been so much. First of all, it's not. I mean, okay, it's either interpreted or it's byte compiled, but not really both. Right. Right. And there's been so much work to speed up by compiled code these days. I mean, you've got V8, uh, the small talk people, you know, put loads and loads of effort into making that very, very fast. Uh, and a lot of that got rolled into Java. A lot of that research got rolled into Java, which is, you know, okay, granted it's a static language, but it's pretty freaking fast these days. Like, I'm, I'm surprised at all this because, so like right now it seems like we're complaining about garbage collectors and stuff. Am I the only one that realized Ruby just got generational garbage collecting? Woo! Wait. I mean, we're catching up, you know, we're, <laughs> we're getting faster. We have a real garbage collector. We have like bitmap generational garbage collector. And so it's friendly with copy on right. Like, I feel like they're making massive strides in these areas recently. Oh, yeah. totally props to the team. But oh, ab- I, absolutely. I think there's an elephant in the room, though, with okay. this concurrency stuff, What's that? Uh, which is that because Ruby has not had a concurrency focus for basically its entire life. Nobody has been thinking about writing thread-safe or otherwise concurrency-safe code right. uh, in, in the gem ecosystem. And that's that, to me, is one of the biggest elephants in the room, is that there is a, a ton of code in the Ruby ecosystem that is not thread-safe. I don't know, it might, might not even be, uh, you know, event machine-safe. Yeah, uh, so let's talk about that a sec, because actually some of what Chuck said about event machine is kind of confusing, I think. Let's address that. So in something like Node, where the entire thing is evented, period, from the the bottom up, everything people write is evented friendly, right? And in Ruby, that's not the case. We have lots of gems, like Opti said, that do things that just can't be used in that kind of environment. So you can totally use Event Machine on a single thread. That's actually the point. And to do that, you need to make sure that any libraries you use are event type approach. So you you switch, you know, which uh, database driver you're using and stuff like that so that you get something that's evented aware, uh, meaning that, you know, they'll, they'll take their little slices of time as they come available and uh, return in a reasonable amount of time and not do something that just, you know, brings everything to a screeching halt. Right. Um, so, so I believe event machine can be used in situations like that, but, but as Abdi said, you're going to have to be careful which things you have to grab and uh, stuff like that. It's a good point that we haven't been aware of the threading thing in the past, so we haven't done a good job prepping for that. So getting back to the single-threaded thing, which seems to be our primary complaint, uh, MRA is no longer single-threaded, but because it invokes a gill to make C extensions work smoothly, and again, that had to be done because otherwise they would have broke almost every single C extension out there, you know, because we haven't prepared, like Augie said, it, it's effectively still single-threaded because you can only be in one uh, at the same time. That said, I see people get this wrong all the time about Ruby, and it makes me mad. <laughs> so I'm going <laughs> to go up on my soapbox here. James, seen- smash! Mad, yeah, smash! So I've seen people say forever that that means you can't do two things in Ruby at once. And, oh, that just makes me so mad. 
so first of all, uh, at least back when I started Ruby, like in Ruby 182-ish or something like that, from that time forward, Ruby has always been super smart about switching thread contacts or releasing the gill when you do something that's going to pause. So, like, uh, make a slow system call. IO is the biggest one. You have always been able to, in a loop, make a bunch of Ruby threads, even when they were green threads, have all of them fetch some web page, and that would work in parallel all the way back to Ruby 182. And the reason is that most of that time was spent waiting on the connection from the other side, and when Ruby sees a thread is about to go to, into waiting mode, it would uh, suspend it, put it to sleep, and jump context to the other thread. So they would all do that. If you did it in a loop and you fetched 10 websites, you would have some big amount of time. If you did it in a loop and put them all in threads, even back on Ruby 182, uh, you would have noticed a huge drop in time. Yes. Because um, that, that has worked as long as I've been in Ruby. So, but Obdi has the right example. Anything that's processor intensive is where you're going to get into trouble right. because you can't, you know, pause the thread in the middle of chewing on the CPU. Well, you can, but then work won't be done. Ruby has another solution for that, and that's Fork, right? That's been, in my opinion, the core team's idea of how we should go forward. And obviously, there are there are presses and minuses about that, but you you've been able to fork another process, and two processes will be scheduled by the operating system, not by the Ruby interpreter. Therefore, at that point, you can easily chew on multiple CPUs or or uh, whatever cores even. So I would say that's the Ruby answer. Now, it's definitely not a perfect answer. Uh, and I think this was primarily Dave's complaint of, one, you start forking processes, you have to worry about a lot of things. Like, how are they going to communicate to each other? How are they going to pass data back and forth? Um, what are you going to do to reap the zombie processes so that, you know, they don't build up and you know, all of these things. Right. So or, you the, have, or the fact that each process is 64 megabytes in size. Only if you're only if you're forking Rails. That's not oh, true. Fair point. Fair so. point. Um, but yeah, Fork I, Rails. I agree. Uh, it's still a huge amount of resources compared to, sh- to right. shared resource threads. Mm-hmm. Um, and and here's the thing about that. I mean, it's not just strictly a resource consideration. You have to structure your entire architecture around that decision. You have to figure out, uh, hopefully yeah. fairly early on, where is a good place to chop, you know, to, to divide the system mm-hmm. into separate processes. And you have to make it high enough level that you don't later, later find yourself wishing that you could start up 10,000 of these, of these forked processes. Right. And, I compare this in my mind to something like the airline process model, where an application is is built basically built of many many airline processes, and those are you know they're scheduled independently and they're very 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 lightweight and you don't have to think about oh does it make sense to fork this off as a process or uh, should I try to combine it into another process because we don't ha- want to have too many processes you know and and of course airline you know takes it to the next level where you can even decide you know, should this be even part of the same system, basically, or do we want to push it out off somewhere else? But the process model forces you to make really, really big architectural decisions. And, you know, and that also comes out in, like, you know, Ruby doesn't have a really great way of communicating between processes either. 
at least, you know, not baked in, not like this is the, the accepted way. Right. And so, you know, you also have to spend a lot of time thinking about, okay, now that I've decided I've got a good seam where I'm going to split it into a few different processes. Now, how do I, how do I make them talk? Again, in a language like Erlang, all that's already wired up for you. You just, you're just sending messages around always. Yeah, that's a good point. I think when I finally got into Linux and learning how the process model works there, I, I really internalized a lot of that and went down a lot of those rabbit holes. So like, to me, it's totally natural to pull a pipe, do a fork, close one end on both sides and, and communicate across that. You know, I, I do recognize it takes a little, a little code and then you have to decide what protocol you're talking over that socket or whatever, or pipe or whatever you're using. So to me, that's always felt not too unnatural, kind of the Unix-y way. Uh, but I recognize that you're right, and, and things like Erlang, where they just, you know, have operators for sending messages to other processes and stuff. I'm not sure I totally agree with the, you don't, like, even with a language that does it better, even JRuby, which gets rid of the gil, then you have to think about different things, in my opinion, mm-hmm. that, yeah. Uh, potentially two threads could be in this code at the same time. Is that okay? And right. I feel like that makes me make different structural changes and decisions. So I, I don't know. I, I, I think planning for concurrency to me always seems like planning for concurrency, that it's something you have to do and think about the problems that are going to be involved. And yes. it's complicated. I will give you that. I agree that Erlang is probably like the lightest it's so ready for you. We're trying to make this as painless as humanly possible. Uh, yeah. You know, thing. Uh, there's other problems to fork, by the way. I didn't cover them all. Uh, Windows being one of them. I don't believe fork is implemented in Ruby on Windows. Nope. nope. So, which is probably one of the reasons, you know, uh, that people aren't super big on it. But man, it's amazing on Unix. It's now that's, that's not Ruby's fault, though, right? I mean, the Win32 or, well, Okay, that shows my age, doesn't it? But the Windows operating system doesn't have a fork, does it? Not in the Unix sense of the word. You can obviously start up, you know, other processes and and you can emulate some behaviors. So uh, hats off to the Perl team on this one. Perl fork works on Windows and it, it does it through emulation using P threads and them arranging for the two processes, not just to say it's, it's the most epic hack I think I've ever seen. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm sure it was hard, but it does. It, it is possible to build things like that, I think, on Windows. But yeah, Ruby doesn't, doesn't go that far. But I would say that traditionally processes has been the Ruby way to achieve real concurrency and it's not it's not without its faults i'm not saying that it is but you can make some stuff go really fast resources is maybe the last point dave had that we should touch on a little i'm not sure how much of that to actually pin on ruby ruby i guess uses a fair bit of resources i think the ruby process is fairly small if you just fire it up and and check it out uh I, I seem to remember like two bag sticks in my head. Maybe it's four, um, oh, well. yeah, I, which I guess is I guess is bigish, uh, but not like gargantuan. Uh, Rails is different. If you fire up Rails and then right. check check in the process table, it's it's much much bigger. But uh, 
they've made lots of progress there. Like I know uh, in the hash, they made it ordered in uh, Ruby one nine, I think, mm-hmm. and so that required hash to get bigger. But they made so many memory improvements in the move to the new architecture that hash was like a wash or got smaller. So mm-hmm. like it, it you know, it didn't really hurt it. So I, I think they've done again made some pretty amazing improvements there and. I think it has a lot to do with how you use it. I think people tend to think that Ruby leaks memory and things like that, which I think Ruby under the microscope rum again covered so well, just showing how the way we use it and passing blocks around can cause this context to be saved on the heap that looks like it sticks around for a long time and and that's what makes you think things yeah. like that. I think. There's with every language, there's things that you you can learn and go, okay, I'm going to close the door on this and never think about it again. And then there's other things that you have to, it's the minefield, right? You have to learn, oh, I have to remember, I can't take a hash in from the Rails controller that is, you know, the URL parameters that came from user land. I can't call symbolized keys on that because users can put in any keys they want on that string. And I've just created a, a symbol that won't ever go away. Although I hear a rumor now that symbols can be garbage collected. No, they can't. They it's can't? Been, oh. It's been talked about, but they don't. They oh. don't have to Was that an that. April Fool's Day post then? <laughs> it's been talked about making them garbage collectible, but there's lots of fun. The, the VM uses symbols internally for its symbol table, mm-hmm. you know, so there's issues with that. I'm pretty sure they are still not garbage collected. That said, I I would encourage us in this discussion to separate Ruby and Rails as much as possible. Yeah. Rails does a lot of things, like you just mentioned, you know, having a hash that doesn't know the difference between symbols and keys. While that may seem really cool from a programming standpoint, it has performance implications that I don't think were properly considered. Rails is just heavyweight with all it includes. And if you have your Rails process and you at some point do a moderately big query forcing a lot of objects into Ruby's memory, that's going to balloon up your process and then it's never going to go back down. Right. So that that's, I think, where people come from when they, they see these leaks and, and ballooning processes and stuff like that. So. Yep. And, and Ruby has given us some tools to combat things like that, even recently with like the lazy operators and stuff that let us, you know, chew over data in a lazy fashion and things like that. So I don't know. I feel like massive thread or inroads have been made here. The threading mm-hmm. is definitely a, an issue and, and still is. Yeah. But, you know, processes can be an answer sometimes. Yeah. I guess we're, we're nearing the point to wrap up and, and I want to take all of the kvetching that I've done in this episode and turn it into the biggest compliment that I can give Ruby, which is I see all the warts in Ruby and I see all the things that we've complained about and Ruby is still hands down orders of magnitude, my favorite language over every other language. No other language makes me happy when I program in it. I am just yeah. thrilled. Nobody brought up M17N. I mean, I thought for sure I'd have to defend that <laughs> with my dying breath. <laughs> uh, well that, said, Dave. Yep. Yeah, I, I think it's cool. They've done lots of awesome things. 
they've made lots of progress. And these things that we're complaining about are largely first world problems, right? Yeah. Yep. Yeah, they, they totally are. Yep. So the moral of the story is, is go use Python, Java, Node, Erlang. Yep. That's it. And we're then, switching. And then come back. Yeah, we're switching yeah. to everything else. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Small talk. Small, Small talk. talk. Yeah. 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 Mash, here, them, mash them all up and you get everything that you ever wanted. From and here everything on, you didn't we will wanted. be we will be the non Ruby everything but Ruby Rogues. The, poly, <laughs> the polygot something. Polygot rogues. Well polyglot minus one. Yeah. <laughs> but I tell you what, if Avdi does one episode on small talk, that's it. I'm done. <laughs> Do Elixir instead. Yeah, it's close, right? Already. It did. Alright, cool. Well, should we do the picks? Let's do it. Alright, David, I'm gonna make you start. Okay, alright. Um, so last week we talked video games with Megan, and I apologize that I haven't had any like really seriously in-depth picks, and I have no intention of changing that today. So last week we talked about games. Uh, I want to start by picking Megan's game, Glass Bottom Games, Jones on Fire. This is a silly, stupid, it's, it's, it's cannibalt for a, with a firefighter, you, where you rescue kitties. It's just a run and jump game. That's all it is. And she talks in the, in the, in the last episode, she talks about like juice it or lose it. And just the little twitches that they add to the game make this game, you can play it, uh, how to say this delicately, you can play it in the room that people prefer that I not talk about me using my phone while I'm in that room. Um, <laughs> it, it echoes in there, people hate it when I call. But I mean, in the time it takes you to use that room, the library, if you will, you can play a game of Jones on Fire, and and it's fun, and you rescue some kitties, and it's just fun. It is incredibly simple. You'll look at it and you'll go, I can't believe this game is going to suck me in. But it absolutely is. It's absolutely worth the 99 cents it is. There's there's a, a light version that you can play for free. Don't even waste your time. Just give Megan the dollar and uh, and, and get the, the full game. You'll, you'll get your money's worth out of it. The second game had me crying laughing. I, I installed it last night. It's called Inflation RPG. If, have you ever played an RPG where you grind? Where you're, oh, yeah. you're trying, to, trying to get more, you know, one more hit point, trying to get one more level, just, you know, 50,000 more experience points until I get, you know, one more point of charisma or whatever. Inflation RPG is a little mobile game that lampoons grinding. So you start off and you walk around in this field and the first thing you fight is like a chicken and you gain so much experience after killing the chicken that you are now 22nd level. <laughs> and so you have to immediately leave the home area because now there's nothing worth fighting, right? You've, you've, you've just added your attack score has gone from 100 to 300 in one, you know, after one battle. So you move to the next area and you fight something. And uh, my first game of Inflation RPG, I, I ended, you're limited to 25 battles. And I ended the game with, I was 749th level. And, and then it's, it's over at that point. It, it is just hilarious to, awesome. to just see, you know, they use the, the JRPG style, you know, like Japanese anime style. And when you win a battle, you just see this level up, level up, level up, level up, level up over your character. I mean, 
you know, I, I've gained 70 levels in one battle at one point. It's, it's just absolutely insane. It's hilarious. It's fun. Uh, it's, it's well made and it's silly and stupid. You can put it down and walk away from it. There is a little bit of a longevity to it, which is that you can buy equipment and anything you purchase, you get to keep forever. So your next character starts with, you know, things that boost attributes and that sort of thing so that you can go even further in your next, uh, in your next game. And so that's Inflation RPG. Uh, I know it's out on Android. I don't know what other platforms it's on. I know Jones on Fire is on, uh, in Megan's own word, on every mobile device ever. Uh, Inflation RPG, I'm not sure on. But uh, I recommend them both. They are lots of fun. And that's my picks. Avdi, what are your picks? I'm just going to pick a bunch of blog posts and talks that I've liked recently. So um, let's see. Going down the list. Oh, there's a talk called OOP. You're doing it completely wrong about how you're doing object-oriented programming wrong by Kevin Barrage. I enjoyed that one a lot. There is a... um, Oh, speaking of small talk. Noel Rappin did a talk at Mountain Rest RubyConf about uh, why you should really check out Smalltalk. And uh, he uses the uh, Faro Smalltalk uh, in some live demonstrations. And incidentally, Faro Smalltalk just dropped their 3.0 release. Uh, so that was a really enjoyable talk. And it gives you a, a nice quick glimpse into uh, what you're miss- missing out on when you don't write code within a, within an image. And uh, let's see, there's a um, an article that I got a huge kick out of recently called Programming Sucks. And that's exactly what it's about. And it's just a, one of the better rants that I've read recently. So uh, I think I'll just leave it at that. Some talks and, and uh, articles. Awesome. James, what are your picks? I've got two uh, for programming kind of related one. I didn't know that there were other ways to monitor a file other than tail-f, but it turns out there is. You can use less plus f, and the advantage of doing this is it does, like, the tail thing, and then when you want to stop it to, like, look at what's going by and examine that, you can. You can hit Control-C, and it, like, takes you into the normal less interface, so then you can move around or search. Uh, using that, uh, it's pretty cool. So it's like tail, but you can pause it and go into like a less environment and, and poke around and then restart it if you need to. It's pretty cool. And then, uh, I, I just saw this for fun tweeted the other day, uh, 33 amazingly useful websites. And I was surprising, surprised by how many of them I wasn't familiar with. Uh, and there, there are all kinds of things in here, uh, Sites that will tell you what to eat or what to watch or, you know, how everybody's flipping their uh, name upside down on Twitter. Uh, this site will do that for you. You can type in some text and it will give you the characters flipped upside down. Uh, just like lots of random things like that. I think one of my favorites is Can I Stream It? Uh, was on there, which you can go in and like, oh, I want to watch movie XYZ. And you just type it in there and it's like, oh, you can stream it from Netflix or Amazon or Hulu or whatever. It tells you where you can go find it on the internet. Lots of cool sites in there and then some that are just silly, wacky fun, but cool stuff. That's it. Awesome. I've only got one pick today. It is Smart Kids, Smart Money by Dave Ramsey and Rachel Cruz. And it's a terrific book about teaching your kids how to handle money. And uh, you can start them at like age three. And it, it kind of gives you guidelines all the way up. So just a terrific book. 
really enjoying it. So that's my pick. We are coming up on our episode with Rebecca Werfsbrock. We're going to be talking about object design. And so if you haven't had a chance to pick up the book, go get it and catch you all next week. This episode is sponsored by CodeShip. CodeShip is a hosted continuous deployment service that just works. Set up continuous integration in a few steps and automatically deploy when all your tests have passed. CodeShip has great support for a lot of languages and test frameworks. It integrates with GitHub and Bitbucket and lets you deploy cloud services like Heroku, AWS, Nojitsu, Google App Engine, or your own servers. Start with their free plan. Setup only takes three minutes. CodeShip, continuous deployment made simple. A special thanks to HoneyBadger.io for sponsoring Ruby Rogues. They do exception monitoring, uptime, and performance metrics and are an active part of the Ruby community. Hosting and bandwidth provided by the Blue Box Group. Check them out at bluebox.net. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more. Would you like to join a conversation with the rogues and their guests? Want to support the show? We have a forum that allows you to join the conversation and support the show at the same time. You can sign up at rubyrogues.com slash parlay.